not sure we're supposed to be salty Christians. You know, that could be maybe negative, but uh, I think we got the idea there. Our salt needs to have savor, right? So thank the Lord for you being out tonight. I know it's not the, the most uh, pleasant night out there, wintry-wise, but thank you for making the trip, and we do pray that uh, you'll be able to get home safely. Let's take our Bibles and go to Luke chapter 2, Luke and the second chapter, and uh, this is a passage that comes near the end of the Christmas account uh, that no doubt we've looked at in the last few weeks, but uh, there's a thought here that I want to try to develop uh, from this passage in Luke chapter 2, and starting with verse 25, Luke 2 and verse 25, the Bible says, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of the people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This is the first of many times in the New Testament where people marveled at something Jesus said or something Jesus did. They marveled. It's the first time. And there are many times that follow it in the life of Christ. For example, in John chapter 7 and verse 15, the Bible says the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Here was Jesus early in his ministry explaining the scriptures to the uh, those in the temple who were supposedly educated in the Old Testament. And Jesus is answering their questions. He's explaining the Old Testament to them. They're going, how does this man know all these things? He's never been to our institutions of learning. He's never studied the law. How in the world does he know these things? And they marveled. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 8, the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They, they were marveling that he had power over nature, that he could say to the wind, be still, or the waves to calm. And, and they were marveling that he had this power over all of creation. In Matthew chapter 9, when the devil was cast out, uh, the devil spake and the multitudes marveled saying, we never saw it on this fashion. In other words, here now he has power over the unclean spirits, the demon world, and they're marveling at this power. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 17, Jesus answering them and said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. And they marveled. I kind of marvel when he makes me pay taxes too, don't you? But they marveled that he was giving honor to the institution of government as well as honor to God himself. In John chapter 4, you know the story of the woman at the well. And the disciples had gone into the city to buy meat. And when they came back, Jesus is talking with this Samaritan woman, a woman that the Jews had no dealings with. They were were looked down upon. They were despised by the Jews. And here's Jesus having this conversation with this woman, and they marveled that he spoke 
with the woman. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus stands before Pilate. And Pilate is asking him questions, and Jesus refuses to answer. And the Bible says Pilate marveled at him. And even after they crucified Christ, the Bible says that Pilate sent soldiers to break the legs of the one and the other that was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. And they came back to Pilate, and they, and they said that he was already dead. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. Time after time, people marveled at something Jesus said, something Jesus did. And we ought to take some time every day in our life just to marvel at the grace of God. We have to marvel that God would love us, that God would save us, that God would use us in some fashion. Now, the word marvel means awed or overwhelmed or struck with wonder amazed, staggered, astonished. And it's certainly logical that you and I as finite human beings would see God's work and God's uh, uh, creation and all that God has done for us spiritually and it's obvious that we would marvel at it all. We would be awestruck. We would be taken aback. We would be maybe speechless at the goodness of God, the the miraculous work of God. It's no wonder that we as human beings would marvel at an awesome God. But does God ever marvel at us? Does God ever look at your life or mine and be awestruck, taken back, maybe speechless? Well, there are two times in the New Testament where Jesus marvels at people. And I want to look at them tonight. So take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 6, if you will, and we'll see the first instance where Jesus marveled at some people. And as we come here to Mark chapter 6, we find that Jesus marveled at their skeptical fear. Look at verse 1. And he went down from, or he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marvels here at their skeptical fear. They were skeptical of his words in verse 2. They, they were hearing them speak, and they were, they were thinking, uh, we, we, we aren't sure we understand. We, we, how does he know uh, this from the Old Testament? And, and then in verse 2, it, it talks about later in the verse, they were, they were skeptical about his works. Now, now, it's interesting that everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did in his ministry was an exact fulfillment of what was prophesied of the Messiah back in the Old Testament. 
And these were people that were looking for this Messiah. They were waiting for him. They were, they were praying that the Messiah would come. And here he is now. He's saying the very things the Old Testament said the Messiah would say. He's doing the very things that they said the Messiah would do. And yet they're skeptical. There is a skeptical fear. There is a tendency and a hesitancy toward God's promises. They're hesitant. They're not sure that they can actually believe. They were hesitant toward God's promises. But aren't we that way? It's amazing how people are are hesitant toward God's promise of salvation. They hear the gospel. They hear what it means to be saved. And people say, "Ah, it can't be that easy. Right? They'll say, I, I just think it's, it's, it's way more complicated than that. You, you, you can't just realize you're a sinner and, 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 and realize that you can't save yourself. And so there's this person, Jesus, who, who came and died on a cross and was buried and rose again the third day. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you can go to heaven. It, it can't be that easy. People think there's, there's got to be some religious ritual. There's got to be something I have to do. There, there's got to be some payment I have to make to attain this eternal life. It can't be that simple. And they're skeptical toward the promise of salvation. What does the Bible say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that's simple, but that's God's promise. As many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And while it is simple, it is what God said. And we must believe the promise of salvation. Some people are skeptical toward God's promise of security. We, we think, oh, boy, these are tough days, and these are dangerous times, and, you know, can God keep me safe? Can God really do what we sang about a minute ago when the storms of life come, when the difficulties come? Is God going to be there? Well, what does God say? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. But we become skeptical because of our fear. We become skeptical of his promise of security. We, we get skeptical about his promise of strength. We say, oh, God, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can make my marriage work. I don't think I can raise these kids. I, I don't think I can obey my parents. I don't think I can actually serve God at church. I, I just don't have the resources. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. Wait a minute. God said, my strength is made perfect In weakness, he giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. But so often when we get weary and we get tired and we we say, Lord, I just can't keep going, We doubt the promise of his strength. Sometimes we doubt the promise of his supply. We think, God, have you heard about inflation? (laughs) You know, Lord, I don't know if I can make ends meet. 
Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can, I can tithe. I don't know if I can support missions. I, I don't know, Lord. Things are getting tight. Well, God said, my God, Philippians 4.19, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, that verse is, is, is very interesting. Because I'm very glad that God did not say, my God shall supply all your need out of his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's not what it says. Because if God supplies what I need out of his riches, it would indicate that God could run out. Right? In other words, if you came to me and said, Brother Gash, can I borrow some money? And I said, well, let's see. Oh, wow, I do have some money. I have $41. How much do you need? You say, I need $20. Okay, well, I have it. Uh, sure. Now, if I give you $20 out of my 41, I have depleted my supply, right? If I give out of what I have, I now have less than what I had before I gave to you, right? But that's not what the verse says. It says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches, in glory by Christ Jesus. You see, God's riches are never going to run out. His riches are eternal as he is eternal. And so when God supplies our need, he's not taking anything out of the reservoir that he has. He's supplying our need according to those riches. And that's why David could say, I've been young, now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor seed begging bread. Sometimes we doubt the promise of God's schedule. The Bible says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Okay? Now, that word ordered could be looked at from a couple of angles. Um, Larry and Jean, did you make it up there to Custer to eat today? Did you go to that restaurant? Okay. So they, they went out to eat this, this afternoon. They told me they were going. They had to hurry because Jean was hungry. And so they rushed out. Uh, probably didn't shake your hand. They were so hungry. But they, they went up there and they ate. And, and probably when you walked in there, you sat down at a table and a waitress or a waiter came over to your table and, and uh, handed you a menu. And uh, said, would you like something to drink? And they said, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have a coffee or I'll have a iced tea or I'll have some water. And so the waitress or waiter went off and got those things, brought it back and probably asked this question. Are you ready to order? Right? That's pretty typical if you go to a restaurant. Are you ready to order? And by that time, you've looked at the menu and, yeah, yeah, I know what I want. I've eaten here before. I'm going to have the same thing I had last time. Or I'm going to have this. Or I'm going to try this over here. And you put in an order. Now, think about that verse in that respect. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God's already put in an order for our life. I was telling the young people yesterday, in Jeremiah chapter 1, God tells Jeremiah, when you were still in your mother's belly, I knew you, I formed you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God already put in an order for Jeremiah's life. It wasn't up to Jeremiah to figure that out at some point. No, God had already ordered that. Paul said the same thing in Galatians chapter 1, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. 
God already had a plan. Before Saul of Tarsus was ever saved, God already knew, I'm going to make him a preacher. I'm going to make him a minister to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of sin to the power of God. God already knew that. He had an order placed, and he has an order for your life and mine. And by the way, don't you hate it when they mess up your order at the restaurant? Isn't it frustrating when they come back and your eggs are scrambled and you wanted them fried? You're like, this is not what I ordered. I wonder if God in heaven tonight is saying, this is not what I ordered. Right? We're wise to follow what God ordered for our life because it's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect in the will of God. So we think of that verse in that way. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. But the word ordered also would indicate sequence. For example, if I called my assistant tomorrow and I said, uh, Carrie, I left some tests on the corner of my desk that I, I, I gave online last week. I, I, I teach some online classes during the break, and I, I'm teaching an advanced counseling class right now. And I said, I, I left some tests there that I printed out that the students took last week, and I graded them. But uh, I, I need, as soon as I get back, to get those grades posted. i got to get them in the portal and get them posted so the students can see how they did. Could you, this week sometime, put those in alphabetical order for me? Because that will make it a lot faster for me to put that grade in if they're in alphabetical order. Well, if I told her that, she'd know exactly what to do. That would be a pretty simple task for someone of her caliber. And so she'd go in there and she'd take those tests and she'd start putting them in order according to last name from A to Z. We would all understand that. Okay, now think of the verse in that way. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Job said, thou numberest all my steps. When I was in elementary school, sometimes the teacher would come in after a recess or something, and she'd say, all right, take everything off your desk. I want everything off your desk. Clear your desk. When she would say that, I'd get nervous because I'd think, oh, no, what's coming? What's coming? And, uh, you know, she didn't say take out your math book or, you know, whatever. We don't know what's coming. And I'd I'd get a little bit nervous. And then she'd have a a bunch of papers in her hand, and she'd start around the room, and she'd put a a piece of paper face down on your desk. And she'd say, don't turn it over until I tell you. And you're like, oh, no, this is a test. And I'm not ready. I didn't study. I missed the memo. I didn't get it. I I didn't know we were having a test. And so I, I would begin to get really nervous. And she'd get them all passed out, and then she'd say, okay, turn them over. And I would turn it over, and it was one of those dot-to-dots. Remember those? All those dots on a page, just random dots everywhere and little numbers by the dots. And she'd say, go ahead and begin. And, and, and what you had to do is you had to take your pencil, and you had to find the dot with the number one. This was to teach us how to count, I think. And so uh, you had to find the dot with the number one, and you put your pen there, and then you had to find number two. You had to look for the dot with number two, and you found number two, and you drew a line from number one to number two. And then you found number three, and you drew a line in number three, and then the number four, and then the number five. Now, if you were like me, I wanted to be the first one done. I wanted to be the kid that could jump up and say, it's a rooster, it's a rooster. You know, I wanted to tell everybody what it was before they discovered it. So, man, I, would, I loved those things. I would go to work on it, and I'd go from one to two, three, and then four, five, and then I'd, I'd see the girl next to me, and she's on, like, number nine. And I'm only on number five. And I'd panic. 
And I think, oh no, she's going to know before I do. And so I would, I would go from five to, to 14, and then to 19, and then 23. Now I'm ahead again. But you know, if you do that, when you get it all done, it's not a rooster, it's a mess. But isn't that what we do with our life? God has us on number six. We say, Lord, I don't like number six. I don't want to be on number six anymore. Get me to number seven. You ever notice when you ask a kid, I, I talk to kids and I, I enjoy talking to children, and, and, and you got to kind of find their, their conversation zone, right? You got to, when you're a stranger, you ask them their name, you ask them, you know, hey, how are you? And, and a lot of times I'll ask them, how old are you? And if you ever ask a kid how old they are, they always say, I'm almost seven, or I'm almost 10, right? I'm almost the next number. I'm almost seven. Really? You're almost seven? Wow. When's your birthday? September. (laughs) You know, it's January, but they're almost seven, right? They're always looking forward to that next birthday. Can't wait to be 10. Can't wait to turn 13, be a teenager. Can't wait to be 16, drive a car. Can't wait to be 18, I can go to war. uh, Can't wait to be 21. Can't wait to go to college. Can't wait to get married. Can't wait to have kids. Can't wait till the kids leave. You know, it's your whole life's like this. We're never happy where we are. We always want to get to that next number. And God says, hey, I've ordered your steps. You say, well, I... I don't like being single. I want to get married. Well, God has some things to teach you while you're single. Well, Lord, why did, why did I lose my job? Well, God wants to teach you some things during this time without a job. And I've learned something, that the longer I take to learn what I'm supposed to learn on number six, the longer it takes me to get off number six. I may want to get to seven or eight or whatever I see in the future, but God says, hey, I got some things I want to teach you right here. Trust my sequence we tend to get skeptical. We tend to get hesitant toward the promise of God's schedule. But notice our hesitancy toward God's promises bring a hindrance to God's power. Did you notice it here in verse 5? He could not do many mighty works there. Oh, he healed a few sick folk, but nothing major. Nothing happened here really of significance. It doesn't mention who got healed or from what they got healed. There were just a few healings that he did, but nothing major happened here. Why? Because his power was limited by their unbelief. In Matthew chapter 13, he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be a sad thing if God looked down at the Mountain View Baptist Church in Custer, South Dakota, and said, there it is. There it is. There's the church. That's the people right there that I want to use to spark an awakening across America. Right there. That's the place. And then God were to say, no, we better move on. There's no faith there. Wouldn't that be sad? Well, what if God looked at your life or mine and he said, there he is. That's the guy. That's the gal. I want to use them. No, let's find somebody else. There's no faith. He could do not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings 6 and 7. 
There's been a famine that has swept through the nation, and times are rough. Now, people have money, but there's nothing to buy. There's nothing in the stores. They are desperate. They have money, but, but there's no food. There is nothing, and people are starving. In fact, it is so bad. 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us a, a horrific story about two women who both had a baby son, and they agreed that they would kill their sons, boil them, and eat them. So the first day, they're so hungry, they're so desperate that one of these women takes her son, kills him, they boil the flesh, and they eat it. The next day, she says, okay, we did that yesterday. Now, it's your turn, but this woman refuses to give her son. She hides her son. And there's an immediate scuffle. There's an immediate argument. And the king hears about this, and he rents his clothes because of what's happening in the society. Can you imagine a culture that would stoop that low, that would rather eat their own children than to starve? I mean, times are desperate. Well, we come to chapter 7. And the Bible says in verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. So the man of God stands up and he says, Folks, just calm down. God has given me a word. And tomorrow, within 24 hours, you're going to be able to buy all the food you need for next to nothing. A shekel was the smallest currency they had. Now, in chapter 6, they couldn't buy a, a calf's dung for silver. Now they can buy wheat and barley and all these things for a shekel. Well, when he makes that announcement, the Bible says, Then a Lord, little gl, or little little. Uh, letter L, then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned. So this was an advisor in the king's court. This was, a, this was a cabinet member, as we would call him today. This was somebody that the king was relying on for advice. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, how can this thing be? This is impossible. This guy's a fool. There's no way that could ever happen. In verse 2, Elisha said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. He recognizes that doubt of God's promise. And he says, Buddy, you're going to see it, but you ain't eating. Now, you can go home and read chapter 7. It's an amazing story. A nearby city of the Syrians gets discopopulated. They run for fear, leave everything behind. The Israelites go in and spoil the city. And the next day, just as the prophet had said would happen, there was food for everybody. And the Bible says in verse number 17 of chapter 7, the man who had said, how can this be? The people trod him down in the gate that he died according to the word of the Lord. 
I believe with every fiber in my body that God wants to bring revival to our nation. Now, I know we're a mess, and I know the problems. I see them everywhere I go. And everything I see tells me there's no way we could have revival. But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I'm afraid some of us might live to the point where God gives revival, but we're not going to have any part in it because of our unbelief. There's revival happening all over this world in even countries where it's illegal to share the gospel. God is doing amazing things, and we in America who have everything are missing out on revival. And perhaps it's because of our unbelief. And so Jesus marvels at their skeptical fear. Let's go to the second place. Go to Luke chapter 7. This one is positive. And here, the Lord Jesus marvels at a man's superlative faith. Now, we have to decide tonight, are we going to live in fear or are we going to live in faith? That's really the bottom line in this world in which we live tonight. Are we going to operate by fear or are we going to operate by faith? So we see God marvels at their skeptical fear in Mark 6. Here, God marvels at a man's superlative faith. Let's read the story starting in verse 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he had heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he, this centurion, was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Nothing arrests the attention of God like faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if you want God's attention tonight, nothing will arrest his attention any faster than faith. Now, Jesus had certainly seen faith in people before this. We're already in Luke chapter 7. And you can go back and read the record prior to this. And, and there were people who had faith to be healed, faith to have a demon cast out, faith to be saved. There, there, there was faith before this. So why did Jesus marvel at this man's faith? What made this man's faith so superlative to any other faith Jesus had witnessed in Israel to that point? Well, I believe there were a couple of components here that we need to understand. This faith was preceded 
by a curious humility. Now, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about a Roman centurion, okay? So this man is, is, is high up in the ranks of the army. He serves the Roman government. He has a, a, a soldier that he loves dearly, perhaps someone who's been very loyal to him, and this man becomes ill. So the centurion, he has heard of Jesus, and so he sends some Jews to go and get him and bring him that he might heal this beloved servant. And when these Jews come to Jesus, they find him, and Jesus is, is teaching, and he's doing his ministry, and they interrupt him. They said to him instantly, the Bible says, hey, Lord, come. You need to come with us. I know you're busy here and all that, but there's a need back here. And, uh, and this man's worthy of your attention. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but in verse 4, they, they said to Jesus, he loves our nation, and he's built us a synagogue. Now, remember, this man's a Roman centurion. The, the Jews didn't like the Romans, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the Jewish people were under their thumb governmentally. They were, the, the, the Roman government was overtaxing them, and they were constantly cruel to them. And, and, and yet here's this, this Roman centurion, and, and he loves our nation. He loves us as a people. He's even built us a synagogue. Imagine if, if, if somebody walks into the church after the service tonight and says, where's the pastor? <laughs> I'll point to pastor first. And he goes over to pastor and he says, you the pastor? Yes, sir. What can I do it for you? Well, I was just driving by. And uh, I don't know why I came in here, actually. But uh, I just uh, wanted to say a word to you. So maybe pastor takes him in his office and they sit down and he says, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And says, well, actually, I'm, I, I'm not a religious sort. I, I, I don't know if I've ever been inside a church. I actually am an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. I don't, I don't believe anything you preach here. But I don't know. I was just driving by, saw the sign, pulled down the road here, and saw your building here, and a few cars, small congregation, and I'd like to give you a check for 10 million bucks. Pulls out his checkbook, starts writing the check. That's what's happening here. This guy built him a synagogue. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, here's this Roman centurion. He's built the Jews a synagogue. We, we got to be careful, even in our lives, that we don't expect God to answer our prayers because of what we're doing, because of what's on our resume. Well, now, God, you know, I've been faithful. I deserve this. Sometimes we can, you know, come to church and, and, and maybe say, now, Lord, uh, my team is playing right now. You know, maybe you're a, I don't know, Cincinnati Bengals fan. They're playing right now. You're like, I came to church, Lord, and I want my Bengals to win. And surely because I came to church, you'll let them win. I'm sure you will. You know? <laughs> and, and it's like you're, you're saying, God, I, I, you owe me. I mean, you know, I went to church. It was even raining and icy, and I went. And so, Lord, certainly you're going to give me a good week. Right, And it's easy to kind of demand something of God because of who we are. But that's not this man. This man has a very curious humility because Jesus does come. 
But he doesn't get all the way there, and this man sends some friends to him and, and, and stops him. And, and, and he says, no, Lord, you're not, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Uh, that's why I didn't come to you myself, because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. There's a curious humility here that precedes his superlative faith. We need to be careful because pride goes before destruction. And God hates pride. Pride separates us from God. Uh, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Because God resisteth the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And we've got to be careful to understand that, 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 that God blesses the humble spirit. And so this faith is preceded by a curious humility, but it is also partnered with a confident hope. After he says, Lord, you're not, uh, you don't need to come to my house. Lord, I'm not worthy to come to you. Just, just speak the word, and my servant will be whole. I have authority. I tell somebody to go, and they go. I tell them to come, they come. I tell them to do this, and they do it. Lord, if you would just speak the word, my servant be whole. And Jesus marvels at this superlative faith. Why? Because it's preceded with a curious humility, and it's partnered with a confident hope. Now, when we use the word hope, we use it in a different vein than the Bible uses it. We might sit here right now and say, boy, I hope it's not too icy on the way home. Well, it is raining and it is freezing and and there's a good chance it will be icy. So our hope isn't based on a lot of concrete evidence that it's not going to be icy, right? I hope it doesn't snow too much tomorrow because I need to go to Rapid City or whatever, right? I hope. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't speak of it in that way. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. For example, when Paul talked about to Titus looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, he wasn't saying, uh, Titus, I hope Jesus comes back. No, he said, I know he's coming back, right? So in the Bible, when God uses the word hope, it is a confident expectation. And this man is with that confident expectation saying, Lord, just speak the word and he'll be whole. That is a faith that God marvels at. Now, sometimes faith on paper and faith in practice are two different things. Sometimes our faith theologically is sound, but sometimes our faith in our personal life is weak. Several years ago, I, I couldn't recall the year, but uh, we, we have chapel every day in our college, and, and uh, we have speakers come in from the outside. We do a lot of preaching ourselves in the chapels and so on. And it was really kind of an uncanny time. We, we had about five weeks of chapel every day where every preacher preached on the topic of faith different passages, different uh, points of emphasis, but for five weeks, and it wasn't planned. It wasn't like we called everybody and said, hey, we need some messages on faith. Come and preach on faith. It wasn't like a, a series we had, we had said, but it just seemed like God was leading every preacher that preached over a five-week period to preach on faith. In fact, it, it, it became kind of a joke on campus. Let's go to chapel. We're going to hear about faith. And sure enough, the preacher would announce the text, and we, all, we know where this is going. We're getting it again. And our attitude was, I guess we need it, right? 
Well, there was a girl in the college at that time. Her name was Chrissy. And Chrissy was in her sophomore year, and and uh, I didn't I didn't know her real well. I, I knew a few things about her. She was from Oregon, and I knew she was from a single-parent uh, family. Uh, she had played volleyball her freshman year and had done quite well, not a starter, but but had played significant minutes. And and uh, I saw her in the back hallway one day of her sophomore year and I, uh, between classes, and I stopped. And I said, hey, Chrissy, I noticed you're not playing volleyball this year. And her head kind of went down. She said, yeah, I have to work a little bit more this year. And I said something like, uh, oh, man, I understand that. Appreciate your character with that. Uh, I said, I, I hope you can get caught up and play next year because you've got some real potential. And we had a little conversation about that. During this five-week period on faith, Christy was always in my eye line. I sit on the platform during chapel, and my chair is kind of tilted this way toward the pulpit so I can pay attention. And if I look up past the pulpit, usually there's a group of kids always sit kind of in the same spot, and Chrissy was always sitting right in my eye line. And, and Chrissy would always be taking copious notes, and she'd be listening and writing. And, and every time the invitation was given, Chrissy would come forward, every time. Every time these messages on faith, she was down the aisle at the altar, weeping and praying. What I didn't know was that Chrissy's mom had cancer and no insurance. And Chrissy wasn't playing volleyball because she wasn't just working a few more hours. She had taken on two jobs and was working 60 hours a week, 30 hours at one, 30 at the other. She would send one paycheck back to her mom to try to help cover these treatments. She'd put the other check on her school bill. And so she was coming every day, just pouring out her heart to God for her mom, for the money needed, all those things, and trusting God by faith. About two weeks into these messages, Chrissy came to my office one afternoon, and she was, she was weeping. And I said, Chrissy, what's wrong? Sit down. She said, Brother Getch, my, my uncle just passed away. And he wasn't saved. She said, my mom and I are the only ones saved in my whole family. As far as I know, my uncle's in hell. And she was, she was torn up. We kind of got her through that a little bit, talked with her and counseled her and prayed with her and I said, Chrissy, are, are you going to go home for the funeral? And her head kind of went down like it did in that back hallway, and she said, no. I said, Chrissy, is it financial? Yes. I said, all right, I, I want you to go back to the dorm and start packing. You're going to go home. You're going home for the funeral. I'll get you a ticket. You've got to be there. This is important. You've got to have closure. Your mother needs you, and you need to be a witness to your family through this. This is a tender time for them that perhaps God will use and use you. She went to the dorm, packed. I got her ticket. We flew her home. Of course, we announced to the student body to pray for Chrissy, pray for, pray for her family, and pray that she would be able to be a witness. At the funeral, she led two of her cousins to the Lord after the service. And as a college, we were rejoicing. We were just so happy that God had used her, that God had blessed her faith. Well, she came back. We're still hearing messages on faith. We're, we're still in the series. 
And every day Chrissy's coming forward and praying and weeping at the altar. About five weeks into this, we're walking onto the platform one day, and Dr. Weaver, who leads our singing most of the time, we kind of alternate some song leaders, but he's typically the guy who leads, and Dr. Weaver is just a year or two older than me, and he's a funny guy. He's, he, you never know what he's going to say or do, and uh, he's kind of spontaneous and, and a wonderful Christian man, and I, I was following him in. We two were walking in. He's going to go right to the pulpit, start the first song, and then I'm going to sit and give the announcements and all that kind of thing. And so we're walking in. We're, we open the door to go on the platform, and he whirls around, and he slaps an envelope on my Bible. And he says, oh, you need to read that. It's from Chrissy. And he takes off on the platform. Well, so I'm walking on the platform now with my Bible and this note on top of my Bible. And so we're singing the first song, and I'm, I'm thinking, what's in the note? <laughs> you know, I'm curious. But I don't want to open it now. I mean, uh, everybody's watching me sing. <laughs> and that's, it's important for me to sing when we're supposed to be singing. And so I'm thinking, I want to know what's in the note, though, from Chrissy. And so I'll confess my sins here. During the prayer, which I was praying, I peeked. And I opened that note while I was praying. And I was shocked. Her uncle, unbeknownst to her or anybody in her family, died a very wealthy man and had left all of his wealth to Chrissy and her mom. over a million dollars. Enough to pay for the $750,000 of medical bills already due. Enough to pay all of Chrissy's four years of education. Amazing. Well, guess what? The preacher preached on faith. And I'm sitting there and Chrissy's in my eyeline and she's writing notes and she's listening. When the invitation was given, she hit the altar. And she's just weeping. These were not tears of crying out to God for help. These were tears of rejoicing. When everybody went back to their seat, I got up and closed the service. And I, I said, well, another great message on faith. Everybody said, amen. <laughs> I said, Chrissy, come on up here. She's like, look at me. I said, come on. I've read your note. I want you to tell us about it. Chrissy very humbly came up and she told us the story. I tell you what, we celebrated for about five minutes. I mean, it was applause, it was shouting, it was amen, it was amazing as we thanked God for working in that life. We went to the next class. And I finished teaching my class, went back to my office, and I was climbing the stairs to the second floor where my office was at that time, and I got about halfway up the stairs, and there was a girl sitting on the landing at the top outside my office door. Her name was Joanne. Joanne was a, you know, typical college student, but she was kind of a pessimist. The glass was always half empty rather than half full. She was always discouraged, never, never seemed to get things done on time, and always kind of down in the dumps. And, and uh, but she's sitting up there, and when she saw me, she jumped out of her chair. And she's jumping up and down, put the catch, put the catch, put the catch. I said, Joanna, calm down, please. Don't have a heart attack here. <laughs> Come on in my office. I pushed the door back. We went in. I said, have a seat. She wouldn't sit down. She leaned over my desk. She said, put the catch, put the catch. Chrissy's testimony, Chrissy's testimony. I said, yeah, wasn't that amazing? 
She said, Brother Cash, I didn't have a class last hour. And after everybody left, I went to the altar. And I said, God, I need faith. I need faith. She said, I prayed for about 30 minutes. And I was going to go back to my dorm and put away my Bible and go to lunch. And I was passing by the post office and I thought, well, I never get anything, but I might as well check. She said, Brother Gatch, there was an envelope in my box with a check to pay for my entire school bill for this year. And she leaned over that desk and got right in my face with her finger and she said, Brother Gatch, you need faith. You need faith. And I said, Chrissy, or I said, Joanna, where have you been? We've been hearing it for five weeks. Message after message after message. But see, Faith on paper sometimes is completely different than faith in practice. By the way, both those girls today, married, children, serving the Lord. Just saw Chrissy the other day in Oakland with her husband and family. Chrissy's mom, healthy, serving God. Listen, faith. God, his attention is raised when we have faith to believe him. So tonight, are we going to live in fear or are we going to live in faith? God marvels at either one. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for these two stories in your word. And Lord, we could, we could sit here till midnight and marvel at what you've done for us.